0: The Partially Examined Life relies on your support. Please consider becoming a Partially Examined Life citizen, which gets you ad-free access to all of our episodes, hours of bonus content, and our not-school learning community. Or support us on Patreon, where even a dollar's pledge yields great rewards. If you click through the Amazon banners at PartiallyExaminedLife.com every time you shop, you'll be supporting the podcast at no additional cost to you. To learn more, visit PartiallyExaminedLife.com slash support. Now please enjoy the show. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 131 is something like, what is the mind? And we're following up on episode 130, where we read books one and two of Aristotle's De Anima, by this time adding book three, which concerns the intellect. You can join the discussion, get the texts, and lots more information at partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is
1: Mark Linsenmeyer at One with the Noose. In Madison, Wisconsin. (laughs)
2: That's terrible.
1: (laughs) This is Seth Paskin with a Tier 2 translation in Austin, Texas.
2: This is Wes Alwyn with an active and passive mind in Boston, Massachusetts.
3: This is Dylan Casey moving myself in Middleton, Wisconsin.
2: What is the mind is a very misleading (laughs) title for this episode.
0: What do you mean? We got sensation. We're going to finish up the the part in... uh, Imagination. Yeah, of, of perception. We got... thinking. Exactly. Locomotion. And they're all different.
1: (laughs) Yes, but mind is such a loaded modern term.
0: Yes. Did you read
1: the Putnam and Nussbaum?
0: Yeah, so we should mention (laughs) that in addition to book three here, one thing Wes recommended was this book, Essays on Aristotle's De Anima, 1985, edited by Martha Nussbaum and Amelie Oxenberg-Rorty, which included an essay by Nussbaum and Hilary Putnam, Changing Aristotle's Mind. I read that, and I also read, it was a response to the article right before that, M.F. Bernyat's Is an Aristotelian Philosophy of mind Still Credible? And as is normal when I read secondary literature like that, I found myself, as I was reading Bernyat, I'm like, yeah. I think it's Bernyat. Bernyat? Okay. As I was reading Bernyat, I was thinking, (laughs) yeah, this is right. This is how Aristotle goes. And then I read the one directly contradicting him and said, No, 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 actually, this is, this is right. (laughs) (laughs) It was very long. It was very exhausting, really interpretively thorough, but, uh, threw out a lot of parts of relevant texts adjacent to De Anima, De Sensu, and things from the metaphysics and other stuff. De Motu.
2: Yes. So I will recommend, just since we're mentioning this, a few other things for people who want to get their heads around De Anima and Aristotle. Probably the first thing I would recommend is Jonathan Lear's Aristotle, The Desire to Understand. Really great introduction to Aristotle. And there's a book by Christopher Shields, which I think is just called Aristotle. That's also very helpful. And then I think we already mentioned this, but we've used this line by line. Unfortunately, I didn't read most of it for... This one for book three, but this line-by-line commentary by um, Eugene Gendlin, who's a philosophy professor and a psychologist, interestingly enough, so...
0: Yes, I actually got pretty damn far into that. I got through his, well, over half the book is end notes, so I didn't read any of the end notes, but I got 45% or something like that, according to my Kindle, into the book, which was all the way up into the last chapter, chapter 13, which is kind of a silly chapter that I don't care that I (laughs) didn't read the interpretation of that. But It was a great way of refreshing and deepening my understanding of the
2: text, and it reads fast. I mean, I read most of that today, so... Yeah. So now, now for the actual text, <laughs> which despite all of my reading, I still feel like I can't do justice to, but I find this enormously complicated. And when I read the secondary literature, I realize how little I've understood in my first reading. And so it's just more than anything else we've read. I find this to be the most challenging.
0: So it's 13 chapters and we also didn't really talk about the second half of book two, which is uh, about perception, which kind of starts off, really the perception stuff is continued by the beginning of book three there, about how the senses work, which sort of at a very high level, no, know, he uses the word motion a lot. And I mean, motion can refer to any kind of change. But in the case of perception, at least the way Aristotle was always presented to me, is it's meant quite literally that there's emotion going through the air. Like when you see something, it's not necessarily a beam of light. It's something, the a piece of the air affecting the piece of the air next to it, affecting the piece of the air next to it, et cetera, which then affects the appropriate sense organ. And that sense organ has to be tuned to that particular kind of sensory data. And so it moves in the appropriate way. And putting this in terms of form is it adopts the form of the thing that you're perceiving of course, it doesn't adopt the matter. So if you see a dog, it has the potential, your eye, to become dog-like. But it doesn't actually turn into a dog.
2: It somehow, at some level, adopts the form of the dog. Right. Yeah, he puts it just that way. It takes in the form without taking in the matter.
3: We should be careful about that term form, right? It's not like it's the shape of the dog exactly, right? Right.
2: But it's not the essence either because it'll turn out that the thing that we use to grasp essences will be noose or intellect. So I've seen this called a lot perceptible form in the secondary literature. So it's the form in the sense of the appearance of the thing. So it's not like we take in the essence of dog through our senses. That's open to inquiry, right? That would be like taking in H2O through our senses as opposed to the sensible qualities of water. So, yeah. So when he says form, I think, yeah, he means something very specific there
3: apropos of some of the stuff we read and then also just thinking about the difference between
0: perception just the reflected light or something like that something completely received this is gendlin's take on him at least is that he's not an atomist is that when we yeah. take in the form of a thing we are not perceiving sense data which we then construct into a thing mm-hmm. we grasp the thing so it's seeing the dog as a whole creature it's standing out as a thing from the background so in that sense yeah we're not getting the deep essence of it but we are getting at it as a uh as a whole yeah. yeah as a whole i was going to say even it as the fact that it is an animal the fact that it is a moving creature but here that might be getting too far into the essence and you would need noose to
3: but some of that is all part of form being able to take in the fact that it's alive versus dead mm-hmm. but besides just getting the whole of it and not being an atomist with respect to it it's also not as if that whole is an assemblage based upon those atomistic things right for aristotle he's saying you're going to get these raw signals coming into your eyes and into your nose and your senses and then you will assemble out of that a dog yep it's that you you
0: perceive the dog Right. That's another thing Gendlin was very adamant about, that the different senses work together very tightly. It's not like it is for Kant, where we, again, use the senses to more or less take in sense data, and then the intellect assembles them into the creature. This actually all happens on the level of the senses. And his story about that is pretty elaborate, but it's a matter that if you do isolate the smell from the sight of something then that's an abstraction. What you take in is, again, not just even the shape of the dog, but it is the whole thing as it normally comes in its multisensory way. So there's a physiological story to be told about how the different senses then come together at a place that he thinks is the heart, but it is the place of common sense, which is a funny use of the term, that is common to all the senses, which Genlin uh, made a big deal out of, but I, I wasn't sure that I... uh
2: completely understood why that was so important well the idea is that there's the question of how we know through all the different senses how we attribute all of those sensations to one thing and we might give an account in which we taste and touch and smell something and then there is another faculty that tells us that all of these qualities belong to the same substance outside of us or the same thing And I think that's kind of Descartes' account, right? When he talks about the melting of the wax and the way in which we intellectually intuit a substance underneath all the changing qualities. For Aristotle, there is no separate organ or faculty, however you want to put it. The organ is more the material substrate of the faculty, right? So there's no sixth faculty that's going to help us unite all of the different senses. Common sense inheres in the main five senses themselves. Yeah, so
3: the very act of perceiving is that putting together is happening. There's not merely an activity of intellect or thinking. He does make a distinction between perceiving and thinking and imagination. But perceiving looks a lot like what we often hear about as thinking modernly because of the way in which we often talk about mind and thinking as being the raw signals on the one hand that then get put together by this thing called mind. Which is not Aristotle's story at
2: all. So we should say we're talking about what he calls the, in my translation, the common sensibles.
3: Can you give a line number?
2: Yeah. So the 425A15. So as motion, rest, shape, magnitude, number, and unity. We perceive all these through movement.
0: Yes. Rest through absence of movement, number through negation of continuity, and also by the special objects. I was really surprised by this, that if you recall our Henri Bergson episode, that was supposed to be a big deal for him, that, hey, if you actually pay attention to the phenomenology, the movement is a basic thing that we perceive. We don't put movement together. We don't perceive sense data and then somehow construct movement out of it. But movement is basic. I always thought Aristotle was one of the people that he was targeting with that, that Aristotle laid the Uh groundwork for this horrible thing that had to be overcome. But no, I think it's more Descartes. And, yeah, it's Descartes, uh, and Newton, right? Yeah, and here it is, right in Aristotle. Yep, movement is a primary thing.
2: So, what does he mean by? And I found that commentators are actually quite puzzled by this <laughs> as well. What does it mean that we figure all these things out through movement, or that we perceive them through movement? Are we inferring magnitude?
3: I mean, I think magnitude is the easiest one, and maybe also figure in the sense of both are extension. So you perceive magnitude by essentially going from one end to the other. It's something that takes time. Moving your eyes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just as a, a slight aside, I was somewhat surprised to, in I don't remember if it was in book three, if it was earlier in book two, to have him talking about geometrical figures and talking about lines being generated by the movement of points. And the reason I was surprised is I associate that so much with a Cartesian generation of a line
1: through moving a point Hmm. so what i'm hearing you guys saying is that you're talking about common sensible objects Mm -hmm. or a common sensible object and his distinction which i thought was kind of cool was that there are five special types of sensible objects that have correspondingly five special organs which are sight hearing smell taste and touch each of which has its own special object, which we'll get to in a second. And then he says, there are common sensible objects, which are movement, rest, shape, size, number, and unity, any of which those common can be perceived by any one of the other senses. So the fact that you can perceive magnitude or size, both through touch or by sight, means that there's something different about magnitude than there is about, for example, color, which is something you can only perceive by sight. So he's just creating this distinction between, and I was still stuck on the idea of the use of the term perception and organ and and sensible object to not abstract from that level to something more sophisticated.
2: That's a good way of explaining it, yeah.
3: Yeah, that was awesome.
2: I'm still puzzled by the whole movement thing, but yeah. Well, and it (laughs) makes it more puzzling the way Seth just put it, that if the
0: common sensibles, any of the senses could get at them, well, how could you smell a line through movement? (laughs) Like what what would that possibly mean?
1: Well, it doesn't mean that any sense can get it. It means that the common sensibles are common simply because they're not unique to any one particular sense. Mm -hmm. So the fact that you can determine a line through both sight and touch Or you might potentially be able to maybe smell and taste have something in common. Maybe there are common objects that there are ways that you could do that, I'm not sure. But that's the only significance of saying that they're common. Not that every single sense shares them or Mm. can equally distinguish.
2: Yeah, there's actually a point, I forget where this is, where he sort of wonders why we have so many different senses. And he seems to say that the multiplicity of senses is the only way we could actually get at the common sensibles, just in the way you're suggesting Seth.
3: So. It's the last paragraph of the first section of book three. One might inquire why it is that we have several senses rather than just a single one. Or is it so that the accompanying and common things, like motion, magnitude, and number, should not go unrecognized? If there were only sight and it was of the white, we would more easily fail to notice them, and all things would even seem to be the one same thing because of the way color and magnitude keep company with one another. As it is, since the common things also dwell in another kind of sensible, this makes it clear that each of them is something distinct. So I guess what he's saying is that the fact that we can detect the common sensibles with multiple senses is the indication that they are different from their distinct things
1: yeah and this goes back to something i can't remember if it was wes or mark said earlier about he makes a point of saying that there's no special organ there's no special Mm. organ for the common sensibles there's no
0: the movement detector
1: yeah magnitude detector right there's no magnitude detector but that it's this combination of the senses working together that in a certain sense I mean, what I heard you just say, Dylan, I'm struggling with how to articulate this is in order to be able to get at all those common sensibles, we need just this combination of special senses, sight, taste, you know, hearing, all that together that make it so that we can get at unity and movement, size, all those things in just the right way. I think he needs to lay that groundwork because. He's saying there is no sense organ and because he doesn't have a concept of consciousness that he's got to have some way to explain how we can get at those things without basically creating a structure of the soul that has seven more additional organs, all of which have those special sensible objects. But isn't in some ways this
3: is like the first and sort of lowest example of what we were talking about at the very beginning – of the distinctive way perception works for Aristotle, that it's something that is active and multifaceted. You're perceiving magnitude and figure directly through the interactivity of your basic senses, but that is the activity of perceiving. And he himself asked this question, which we just read, why is it that you, we would have this sort of multifaceted Ability And the fact that he asked that question makes me think that he has a predisposition to having sort of one-to-one correspondences between things at times, despite the fact that he has this thick notion of perception.
1: Hmm. So, one of the things that's fun about reading Aristotle is that you can construct for yourself a thought process of, like, how he's trying to solve a problem. For example, you know, like, we experience size and movement. How does that happen? Well, we can see things, but seeing is not the same as this. And you can imagine him puzzling through. And one of the things that's interesting about this distinction, I think it comes up a little later, but he mentions it several times through the text, is he talks about there being a surplus. A surplus of a thing can damage a sense. Yeah, that's right. You can overwhelm the sense and destroy it. You can overwhelm the sense and destroy it. Imagine him sitting there thinking, okay, well, if you have an overabundance of light you can be blinded, or an overabundance of sound and you can be deafened. But you can have an overabundance of number and nothing happens. There's nothing that gets debilitated by too much of something or too big a thing (laughs) or too much movement in a thing. And you just imagine him trying to figure out, okay, well, how do I explain that? How can I explain that you have senses that can be overwhelmed by objects, but there are other objects that no matter how much of them there are, how little of them there are, they have no impact. It's a great question.
0: Yeah. Well, I think you could ask, why is this starting off book three? Why isn't he just continuing book two here? And it's because he's building up to talking about the intellect. And you might think that the intellect is another sense, you know, a distinct sense. And so he wants to, you know, he's going to eventually say that the intellect has things in common with the senses in that it too is a potentiality that somehow adopts the forms of the things that it thinks about in the same way that The sight
2: adopts the forms of the things that you see, but it's not a sense. Before we get to that, though, because he has a new account of what sensation is in this. Yeah. So beginning at 425B27.
0: This is in chapter two or three? In chapter three.
2: The beginning of book three, he does
3: exactly with the primary senses and perception what Mark was talking about about emphasizing potential, not just with thinking, that the thing that perception has in common with thinking is potentiality. Yeah. And that that comes out in the second
2: section. Yeah, so I, let me read some of this, because it's pretty stunning, actually. So this is actually chapter two, the yeah. third section.
3: He gave the line numbers. Oh,
2: sorry, I thought you meant book three. Yeah, it's book three, I mean. section so, yeah, two, yeah, chapter... and,
3: and, and the line yeah. numbers were right, yeah.
2: So it's 425B27. The activity of the sensible object and of the sensation is one and the same, though their essence is not the same. In saying that they are the same, I mean the actual sound and the actual hearing, for it is possible for one who possesses hearing not to hear, and that which has sound is not always sounding. But when that which has the power of hearing is exercising its power, and that which can sound is sounding, then the act of hearing and the act of sound occur together. We may call them respectively audition and sonnets. So what I find fascinating about this is just this idea of, well, first of all, he's addressing this sort of classic Berkeleyan question of whether if a tree falls in the forest and no one is there to hear it, was there really a sound? Yes. And his answer is, in a sense, yes, and in a sense, no. So,
1: That's a very Aristotelian answer. Yeah
2: so there is sonance, but not audition but because it wasn't heard there was no sound but there is a sound in the sense that it engages in the activity so first of all there's the potential for sound in this particular object and then something happens it results in its activation it becomes actually sonant, or some however you want to let's call it the first actuality right so the second actuality would be its capacity to give off a sound, and then the first actuality would be its giving off a sound. No, no, the, the second actuality would be it actually being heard. That's the way its potentiality. Right, I got them backwards. But I actually, I think there are different. There's different layers here. So once it's giving off a sound, it has the potential to be heard, and then there's a potential for a hearing being to hear that sound. And when the two come together. What I find fascinating about this is they're essentially engaged in the same activity. So when the two don't come together, it's the activity of sonnets by itself. But when there's actual sound and actual hearing, they are the same thing. It's
0: like a chemical reaction that the two things are coming together to make the sound. The difference between that is that that sounds like that both of them change. And he's very adamant that the sounding thing, though it causes us to hear it, is the actor does not itself have to change as a result of us hearing it. It doesn't care whether we he hear it or not. But
3: they're being at work, the sounding thing and the hearing thing, when they're interacting, they're doing it on the same thing, not just incidentally at the same time.
0: Right, they're doing it onto the organism. The organism is yes. is the receiver, is the thing that is being changed, the thing that is adopting a
2: form. Yes, But the point is that what we call a sound is actually this joint activity of subject and object that can be broken apart into audition and sonnets if we we look at it that way.
3: But by the logos, but they're not, properly speaking, separable.
2: Yeah, not in the act of hearing are they separable. But the separability comes about when the possibility of no one being there to hear it, and then you just have the... Yeah. and In that case, there's still an activity. There's still an activity of the sensible object, but it's not this unified subject-object activity.
0: Now, is it an accident that he uses the term object of perception all over the place, but he doesn't actually use the term subject at all?
3: Where is an example of object of perception?
0: Well, in my translation, 426... 426- a 15, since the activity of the object of perception and of that which can perceive.
2: Yeah, so the object of perception is literally the thing perceived. It's the two. Yep. I stay to. So it's just that he's using a, what they call a substantive. So you can translate it as object if you like, but he's just saying the thing perceived.
3: In my translation, it's called what. <laughs> this guy uses the, the, instead of activity, uses being at work. And since the being at work of what can perceive and of what is perceptible is one. Right. Right. They'll, their being is different, it is necessary for hearing and sound meant in this way to perish or be preserved together, as well as flavor and taste and likewise the others. But when these things are meant as potential, it is not necessary. So, you can separate them from one another, in which case you end up intrinsically talking of potential. So, you know, the tree falling in the forest, if there isn't an entity hearing it, then... You end up having to talk about it has the potential of being heard, but the full subject-object relationship isn't there. And the full being at work of it, of both of them, would be in that interactive moment.
2: Yeah, they would actually be one energeia one activity or being at work. Exactly, one being at work in which you had
3: an emitter and a receiver that they're in symbiosis.
2: But the point is, it's not, I think, and Mark was saying this, it's not like the perceptible thing affects us, affects our faculty. Rather, we have a potentiality and it rises to the occasion. It becomes activated. It's almost like they go out to meet each other. So we are activated and the object is activated and then the activities unite. But Mark, you were talking about this lack of the use of, the, of subject.
0: Well, yeah, and I'm, I'm, I was getting at one of the themes of this Neussbaum Putnam article which emphasizes how prescient and relevant in a post-Cartesian world Aristotle is in his epistemology because it avoids the mind-body distinction and the gulf between subject and object and all these things that we've talked about that we blame Descartes for and then say that the later phenomenologists, Hegel and Heidegger and folks like that, and then also people like Dewey, then overcame that actually this stuff is not in, Aristotle in the first place if you read him right. Not seeing the word subject there is something that I was taking as evidence of that, that he's talking about, you know, obviously we're we're talking about organisms. We're talking about organisms that are alive, that have some sort of functional unity about them. That's the whole point in talking about the soul. And the soul has all these different parts that hook together in different ways. And we can talk about perception in a sort of mechanical way like this and even admit that, you know, even describe with some great deal of precision, the degree to which the organism is passive, the degree to which the faculty, as you just put it, is active and arises to the occasion in that one of its potentialities is activated, but yet, as I was saying before, it is being acted upon more than acting. And th- this, I think, is important later because the thing that acts without being affected is better.
2: <laughs> right. So intellect will be, yeah. Yes. Yes. That intellect, the pure intellect. Yeah. We don't need to be impressed upon by objects of thought in order to think them In fact, that it
0: can't. That's going to be one of the problems, is how you could have an overweening intellect like that that could survive separate from the body, that is not restricted to space and time. The thing that Thomas Aquinas and a million other Christians jumped on and said, yes, Aristotle's our guy, but yet also have this picture of the intellect being much like perception in that it adopts the forms of the things that you perceive or, in the case of the intellect, think about. So there have to be multiple parts of the intellect we can sort of just treat this as we go through the text, but if you guys had any sort of initial reactions on what you thought of Aristotle as this revolutionary figure in that sense, maybe uh, this is not a bad place to introduce them. I'm getting stuck on the word revolutionary just because
3: he predates all that stuff. <laughs> so, how how about, about
0: revelatory
3: figure? <laughs> the story that you just described, Mark, makes me think of the way in which one of the themes in biology... In the late 19th century and early 20th century, was how to capture this activity of organisms that seems to be more than the sum of its parts. And so there were tracks that of scientific thinking that biology was all chemistry, and others that there's something more going on. And you had people who were talking about there being a separate life force, a vis viva. That was sort of completely separate, super added uh, on top of the chemistry, and that was part of what all living things had. But then you had other people appropriating directly and self-consciously Aristotle, even using words like entelechia, to describe that part of organisms that as activity is self-moving, that is more than just the sum of its parts. White is also doing something like this, trying to figure out a way to having things be more than the sum of their parts, which is one way of thinking about what Aristotle's doing is he has a way of speaking of organisms as being holes that are not merely reducible to their parts right from the get-go. And so he's sort of a natural place to sit if you're looking for a really smart guy who thought about this a long time ago to help you get out of that conundrum of. I have a whole bunch of stuff stacked together, but I can't figure out how they become a living thing.
0: Which bringing up the vis viva and this sort of, I don't know, discredited strain in biology, if that at least the way we talked about it in our Schopenhauer episode, our first Schopenhauer episode was any indication, makes it sound like, yeah, and that was actually following in the footsteps of Aristotle. And that's exactly why we don't, Aristotle is not a current figure that he's beyond dead science. And the way that Berniat in his article described this is that just Aristotle would say there's something like the vis viva and then think that that can just be fundamental and doesn't really require any further of what we would think of as a scientific explanation. That a scientific explanation involves being able to connect it to lower levels so that's the goal you know been the goal in all of philosophy to say that to cash out psychology in terms of biology and cash out biology in terms of chemistry cash out t- chemistry in terms of physics etc and so the fact that he's not trying to do that there's something wrong with that and then in the response paper Wes, did you spend more time with uh, Putnam and Anderson than I did the response to that if I remember correctly, is kind of what Dylan said that no, no, there's an acknowledgement that, of course, there is a situatedness in the physical. It's not saying that the vis viva is like a soul that came down from heaven and inserted itself into something and it could insert itself into different things. And that's just that way it happened to be. There's something very specific.
2: So I don't remember this vis viva part, but uh. No, I, I don't want you to settle Aristotle with that part about it. They're having a specific conversation about whether. Aristotle's a functionalist (laughs) and whether sensation is just this basic inexplicable thing that has no physiological basis or whether it does have this physiological basis and to say a functionalist by the way is just to say that the matter in a way is incidental you could as long as you can get the same functions it could be made of silicon or we could be made of you know of something else entirely but that it's the function not the particular material the flesh and bone that's important. So this distinction of hardware and software. Bernhardt is taking a minority view. It's not just Nussbaum and Putnam, but any commentary you read on Aristotle, I've never read another commentary that agrees with Bernhardt. So we should make him out to be a, I know he's a famous Aristotle scholar, but I don't think he has a majority view on this. This is a pretty radical interpretation of Aristotle. It's the Christian interpretation, right? Well, there's that discussion at the end of the Putnam-Nussbaum article about
3: he, Bernier, self-consciously calls it Christian, they take some issue with his interpretation of Aquinas and so forth.
2: Yeah. Anyway, I uh, I didn't want us to get bogged down on those articles, even though they make good background reading. No,
0: but as a high level, you know, to get at what is at stake in this discussion, if this is perhaps the first text in the philosophy of mind, then it is giving a particular position, which there is some disagreement among commentators about, regarding the mind-body problem. And one way of getting at that, you know, the, the connection to functionalism, is just this distinction between form and matter, that talking about the soul as a form and giving a sort of schematic picture of it as, well, the soul is made up of these parts and faculties without feeling like you have to then talk about the matter. Now, Aristotle does talk about the matter, apparently not so much in this text as in other texts. And he doesn't give any indication that I can see as a functionalist who, you know, wants to argue that artificial intelligence is possible, that say the form of a human could be on any other kind of matter. In fact, this text seems to argue pretty strongly against that, that just like a a sense is designed to pick up certain sensory objects. So the human body has a particular potential, and it's not going to get imbued with the soul of a frog or something, you know, that's very specific to the particular kind of matter involved but the fact is we're still giving a
2: form level account but when we say it's specific to the matter right we can mean many things by matter and when we say matter in this particular situation we don't mean atoms and we don't mean even fire earth air and water because matter is a relative term and for aristotle the next level down from soul is functional organism or organs so the matter of the soul is just the functional arrangement of the organs. It's not matter in the way we think of matter. And then the matter of those organs is fire, earth, air, and water. It's a tiered thing. And that's the argument for reading him as a functionalist. The matter for the soul could itself have any kind of matter you like, as long as it's organized correctly.
0: Well, that kind of blew my mind when I hit it in the Gendlin halfway in, where he says, hey, remember that when Aristotle says matter, he doesn't mean stuff. He doesn't mean the physical stuff, which is what I always thought, you know, even if he doesn't mean atoms, he at least means the four elements. But he gives the example of the matter of the number two is the whole sequence of numbers. So it's like the range of possibilities, the environment
2: in which the thing asserts its individuality, something like that. Or just like the matter of a statue, for instance, might be bronze. But bronze itself is informed. It's a structured thing of material elements earth air it's some combination of earth air fire and water so you see Mm -hmm. how these tiers work most of the things that we're when we say that the bricks and and the rest of it are the matter for the house we obviously don't mean it's the ultimate stuff of things you know what we would think of as atoms or subatomic particles we just mean the next tier down the relevant stuff and the it is stuff but something that's functionally relevant to what we're doing right we don't pick up atoms and stick them together to make a house we pick up bricks and do that
3: if you just showed up with a giant bucket of protons electrons and neutrons you wouldn't be able to make a
2: house out of it
3: you have to have bricks
2: or wood or whatever you have to have a specific arrangement of them this isn't just a reading of commentators fancy reading of things this is something Aristotle very explicitly talks about
0: yes I think the reason it was just surprising in here is because he doesn't talk about it here so much it's something that's in the metaphysics which we will get to at another time how many times have you said that, Mark? <laughs> I won't say it again. That was the last time. I think that
3: I think that's the single most repeated phrase on PEL is we will read Aristotle's metaphysics.
2: Do we read the <laughs> metaphysics first or the physics? That's a later. No. 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 The physics has the argument for yep. final causation, which yep. is absolutely I've learned in my researches over the last few weeks, mm. stunningly fascinating, and I didn't even know Aristotle had made such a sustained argument. Anyway, I'm distracting us, but um, <laughs> for another time, <laughs> that's what I would say. So, do we want to get back to yes, back, back to the to sensation? I don't know. Do we want to jump forward past the sensation as harmony?
0: I mean, that's an interesting point for folks that listen to our original Aristotle on Ethics episode way back when, that if you come away with one phrase from that, it's the golden mean. Don't be too strong. Don't be too excessive in one way or another, and you'll probably end up right. And he actually hooks that right back to perception, right? If you think that the organ perceives by taking on the form somehow of the thing it perceives, And I keep saying somehow because it's not like, well, like I said in our last episode, that some commentators do think like the eye fluid actually turns red when you see red. But Nussbaum and Putnam have convinced me that that is not necessary, that you could interpret that in a much more a way that is much more in tune with current physiology somehow the brain has to represent the letter A or something in some way. It's not that
2: it... If you look with a microscope, you see the letter A there. Yeah. We talk about representation. We talk about making pictures of the world. You know, we saw in early Wittgenstein, he's still thinking in terms of a picturing, even though it's the logical structure that does the picturing. So in that sense, it's not so foreign to think that in some sense that there's a likeness of some sort, that the form of a thing is taken into us. It's just the question of what we mean by that and yeah we can take that more literally and say the eye jelly turns red <laughs> but it's more interesting to think about it less literally and
0: since i distracted myself with the eye jelly stuff can somebody remind me what was said right before i started that
2: <laughs> we were talking about the harmony section the idea that the sense organ yes has to be in a mean between you know say the extremes of hot and cold if it's exactly to, if it's to be sensitive to both
0: I recall that when I got into the commentary that making more sense than it does right now saying it because hot and cold, yeah, the hand, it feels things hotter than it is hot and cool things as cold. But does that mean that it's in a, a magic mean? I mean, it just seems like that if something is too cold, it damages the hand, like Dylan was saying. If something is too hot, it will damage the hand. But that just means it has a range that it can take in. It doesn't mean that it's the perfect mean. And you can think of... The level of pitches that dogs can hear versus the level of pitches that we can hear. Why would we think that
2: that ours is the perfect mean and that mean? where where is the perfect mean part in here, Mark? I, we are looking at. I don't know if he specifically says mean in this. I think in chapter two he mentions it specifically, but in the Dylan's translation does not have any <laughs> any of these words. The uh, so we're looking at. I don't think mine uh, did either. Four twenty six a.
3: Just before four twenty six b, right? Stuff on harmony. Read it. Yeah, so in my translation, he says, Now if harmony is a sort of voice, and the voice and hearing are one in a certain way, while in another way, not one or the same thing, and harmony is a logos, then the hearing has also to be a logos. Because of this, each kind of excess, both the sharp and the flat, destroys the hearing, and excesses in flavor destroy taste, and in colors, the excessively bright or obscure destroys vision. And in smell, it is the strong smell, both sweet and bitter, just as though it is a certain logos of the sense. The pleasure also derives from this. For whenever things like the sharp and the sweet and the salty, from being pure and unmixed, are drawn toward a logos, then they are pleasant. And in general, it is the mixed rather than the sharp or the flat that
2: is a harmony. So, in my translation, it's logos is translated as ratio, which I think is pretty typical. Or proportion, I've got, yeah. In this context, yeah. Yeah,
3: so so he's transliterated logos. So,
2: so, we're mixing things.
3: Yeah, but here it seemed to me that he was just saying that there is a harmony in these senses and, and a range, just exactly the way you were talking, Mark,
2: not a mean. Yeah, I think Mark was sort of calling back that he talks of the mean, I think, in chapter 2. I'll just read a little bit from this. It's 4.23b. This is why we have no sensation of what is a hot, cold, hard, or soft as we are, but only of what is more so, which implies the sense is a sort of mean between the relevant sensible extremes. That is how it can discern sensible objects. It is the mean that has the power of discernment, for it becomes an extreme in relation to each of the extremes in turn. And just as that which is to perceive white and black must be actually neither, neither, but potentially both, and similarly with other senses. So in the case of touch, it must be neither hot nor cold. So it, and it connects into this idea of potentiality as well. You know? Exactly. And so I didn't read that
3: as it being a kind of golden mean. I'm, I read it as the senses have to have that range. I mean, I, I would have easily substituted the language of range and being able to perceive both the hot
0: and the cold. Well, I'm bringing the golden in here really because of this new stuff in book three here. I mean, think of it with music is the obvious way that by saying that hearing is a kind of proportion and the aesthetics is built in to this. So he say things are pleasant when brought pure and unmixed to the proportion, but in general, a mixture, you know, you can think of when he's talking about a, a voice, what makes a voice rich and sound good to us is that it has particular overtones. Though you might think, as Plato did, I think Gendlin points this out, Plato says, really the best kind of music is just one note at a time. I want to really be able to hear that note. And Aristotle's saying, no, no, actually, even though that is nice, it's pleasant when it's brought pure and unmixed to the proportion, but think about just eating salt, for instance. Like, clearly with taste, it's better to have a pleasant mixture of stuff Though it's hard to say with taste, you know, you could sort of make up, say, oh, you have to have exactly the right ratio of cinnamon to nutmeg or whatever, whatever the thing is. But with music, it's much clearer that you can say mathematically what makes a, a major chord so pretty and say a lot of other similar things like that, both about the richness of a particular tone and its overtones or about a whole symphony presented in combination.
3: So I think that you're right that the aesthetics is coming in along along with it. So to the extent that you're going to have some kind of golden harmony or relation, then bringing the aesthetics in right along with the
0: perception there and saying why it's pleasant to us. Because it's optimized to the sense. And the sense itself is not random. The senses are optimized for us. They're optimized for our environment, for our survival yeah. And, uh you know, I don't want to draw too much. I know other philosophers like Pythagoras and maybe Plato would have drawn more connection between the sense of hearing and the fact that it is optimized to enjoy a major chord, say, and then the mathematics involved in the major chord, that it's not an accident that we are optimized to enjoy beauty in this way it's not just a peculiarity of our biology the beauty is yes it is accordance with our biology but in turn the biology is somehow in accord with nature as a whole or something larger yeah the spheres
3: uh, yeah because nature is mathematical
0: exactly it's a logos man yeah but even if you just stuck with
3: the biology part the fact that we derive pleasure or are you know attracted by certain combinations of sounds or tastes or in fact repelled by certain combinations of sounds and tastes and that's intrinsically related to our biology is something that you can pick up any number of books or magazine articles about that being the case based upon modern science and biology and Aristotle would have said, "Well, of course, that's what I thought too." (laughs) (laughs) Told you so. It took you. It took you twenty five hundred years to figure that out. Really?
2: I'm Aristotle. (laughs) Told you so. (laughs) Want to jump to uh, chapter three here: the relation between sensation and thinking. Finally,
0: thinking. Um, So, where should we read in chapter three here? Not the beginning, which is boring.
2: Well, in the beginning, he's going to argue against the idea of previous writers, right, that thinking is just a form of perception.
3: Yeah, and he's going to make a distinction between perception and thinking
0: and supposing and reflecting and imagination. And the biggest difference seems to be that you can be wrong in thinking, that if you perceive something... You know, it's just your perceptual organ is filled with the form of the thing that you're perceiving. How could that be wrong? It's only when you identify it and say, hey, that's a dog, that you're doing more than just perceiving. You're making some sort of judgment. You're comparing it to the class of dogs or something like that.
3: But what you just said seems to directly contradict what we were talking about before as perceiving the whole of something. And we we gave the example of, well, you see the whole dog, right? You don't accumulate all those things together. So were we wrong about what we said before? Or is it that you see the whole dog as a whole thing, but the act of understanding it as a dog is a distinct thing?
2: He had a line in the previous, I think it's in book three, actually, in part of what we read. Sensation is of particulars and thinking is of universals. So if we want to think of the objects of thought versus the objects of sensation, it's particular versus universal. Okay. um, So it's the dog versus it's dogness. Yes. (laughs) We can perceive the dog.
0: We can't perceive the dogness. Don't even try. Seth, tell us something about chapter three that you liked or that we should talk about.
1: And before it gets all complicated with uh, a Markism or a Mark interpretation, <laughs> what he says right at the beginning, this is 427B, is he says, we know that perceiving and understanding are not the same thing. And the reason why is if you think of perception in the Aristotelian sense as being this association of organs and special senses like sight and so forth, he says, you cannot be mistaken. Sensation is always true. Not sensation like we think about it, but sensation in the sense of sight cannot be mistaken about color, hearing cannot be mistaken about sound, touch cannot be mistaken about feel, whatever the appropriate words are. But you can be mistaken about shape, size, number, the, the things that are not special to the individual senses. And the reason this is important, it's that example that comes up, I think, three or four times in the text about whether somebody's the son of Cleon or something like that. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? It's identifying somebody from a distance, I think is the point. Basically, that's the idea. You can't be mistaken that what you're seeing is this white figure, but you might be mistaken that it's so-and-so's son. So if it's possible that you can be mistaken about something, which is certainly true about your judgment, there must be some distinction between understanding and perception understanding is not the same type of thing as perception. Where it got confusing for me in this chapter, which I think is a function of my translation, is that they bring up the term imagination, thinking, perceiving, belief. And I had a hard time separating out what all those things might be because he says, for example, um, imagination is different from thinking and perceiving. So he made a distinction between, I'm going to assume that understanding and thinking are co-equal in this translation. So we know that perceiving and thinking are different or perceiving and understanding are different. But then there's something like imagination, which is different from those two as well. But imagination requires perception, but it's somehow not accompanied by belief or is not equal to belief. This is where I kind of got lost. So I felt like there was this typical Aristotelian, I'm going to start separating and distinguishing and seeing how things are the same or how they're different Uh, but i got a little bit lost about how he catapults from understanding or thinking it's not the same thing to perception to getting into talking about the intellect more generally so
2: he's actually going to conclude the imagination cannot be either opinion in conjunction with sensation or opinion based on sensation or a blend of opinion and sensation for both the reasons given and because the opinion relates to nothing else than the object of sensation.
1: What is the difference between imagination and understanding here?
2: He gives the example of dreams. I think, so he gives kind of a definition on, at 428a, the process by which we say that an image is presented to us. I guess it's there's a lack of clarity because it seems like a perception. We, we think of perceptions as being images as well. And I'm not sure what the relationship between the imagination and perception is here, but it's, it's pretty clear he gives dreams and fantasies anytime we call up an image of something that's not actually there, that we're not actually perceiving.
1: Seth, I'm sorry,
3: you were wondering why they're different, perception and imagination?
1: No, I get that they're different. What's confusing me is that in my translation, we have the term imagination. We also have thinking and understanding, and we have belief, or I guess what Wes calls opinion. And then this is right at the end of 427b and beginning of 428a. Thinking, then, is something other than perceiving, and its two kinds are held to be imagination and supposition. Understanding, whatever it is, is not the same as perception. And here's why. Perception can't admit of error. You can't be mistaken about any of the special objects of sensation. But you can be mistaken about common sensibles, which I take to be pointing to the idea that understanding or thinking is somehow this conjunction of all the senses working together, which is where the possibility or, as we discussed earlier, the common sensibles can come up.
2: So he's saying that others have said that thought is held to be imagination and judgment. And then he says we'd best to discuss after having completed our analysis of imagination. I think he's gonna reject that. It's confusing because he's not gonna come out on the side of thinking being comprised of imagination
1: and judgment. That's fine, but can you help me with the Greek What is the word or what is meant by imagination? Imagination is fantasia.
2: I think it's just very commonsensically the having of images that are not perceptual images that we might have in dreams or
1: we might have when we imagine
2: something that's not directly in front of us.
0: So memory is a form of this, but he talks about memory in another treatise, so he doesn't...
1: This section right here, 427b and 428a, is somehow important because he's making all these distinctions between imagination and thinking, and in my translation, what he calls supposition, and that somehow what did you say west opinion
2: yeah so we've got crinane which is supposition or judgment we've got noane, which is thinking and then we have perceiving which is ice then and then imagination which is fantasia. i'd just like to voice on behalf of the audience that actually adding the greek does not make it easier yes it does because we have a bunch of different translations and then doxa is opinion so the faculty of judgment this crinane or the supposition is the way we make opinions so to judge is to make an opinion and that's different than imagination because our opinions are predicative you know we say x is y and we can be wrong about that
3: he later on in 428 a 21 that area he links it up with having conviction. So if you have opinions, you have a conviction about whether it's true or not. And that's different than having imagination. And he links it up with conviction is not present in animals and beasts, but imagination surely is.
1: Right. So imagination is somehow a component. I'm trying not to use the word faculty, but imagination is something that animals and human beings do that's somehow considered thinking
0: it's not considered noose but i guess there are like 10 different words for thinking in here
1: that's kind of what i'm trying to get to is i'm trying to understand what are the distinctions he's drawing so that i can get better sense because it sounds like this goes back to what we talked about in the last episode about nutritive
2: what he really said here is look i'm going to leave off talking about whether thinking is comprised of imagination and judgment and i'm just going to go ahead and analyze imagination first and that's what he does
3: he describes a little bit about what it is. They're saying that it's different from perception and reflection. And then he, by the 428a, sort of recapitulates what imagination is. Imagination is that through which some image comes about for us, if one is to say something non-metaphorical about it. So, imagination is just like what Wes said, having an image of something before you. And then he asks the question, is it one of the potencies or states according to which we discriminate or are in a state of truth or falsehood? such as our perception, opinion, intellect, and knowledge. So he lumps those four things together as the way in which we assess truth and falsehood. He's going to say that we don't use imagination that way. And the next paragraphs go through each of those characteristics, perception, opinion, intellect, and knowledge, saying that, well, they're not like imagination. I gave the reason why for opinion, because it involves conviction. And perception is always correct.
0: Because it is reporting on something that is present, not bringing in abstractions. Imagination, likewise, cannot be bringing in abstractions. Thinking is connected here because thinking as well, he's going to say, is going to use images, but it doesn't do it in the same way as these other two. And perception and imagination, when we get to talking about motivation, they play immediately into this. We were talking in the last episode a little bit about how animals, at least the higher animals, maybe not bees and grubs, but other things, you know, perceiving and imagining and desire all go together. You see there is no food there and want it there to be food there and imagine the food and go do something about it.
1: Right. This all makes sense to me. Can you contextualize this for me and explain how this is getting him closer to a notion of what understanding is? By bringing in the
0: question of does a perception involve a positive assertion or not? Does it involve belief or merely having an image in front of you? and that's going to be important, and how this plays out into practical reason is going to be important. I think imagination just is a way of isolating one of the pieces in the puzzle that does not involve directly an assertion, yet it is, as I just said, tied into the motivational part.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure how it really fits. I mean, he gives that long analysis of the imagination, and then he moves back to thinking and the ways in which it's not like a perception.
1: I mean, I'm happy to kind of let this ride and Maybe we'll get some more clarity further on. But there seems to be this structure where there are these important distinctions. For example, can it admit of error or not? Is it accompanied by belief Mm -hmm. or or not? I feel like what he's doing is he's kind of carving away as if he's trying to guide us to the destination, which will be, oh, this is this sort of thing that does admit of error but isn't associated, and that that's going to somehow supposed to be the light switch or the light bulb for us. And um, I feel like maybe there's background there that I just don't get. Or maybe he's working inside of a context where I could see where he was headed if I understood what that was.
2: Well, maybe if we get into uh, some of chapter four a little bit, we can come back to that.
1: Okay. Um, Because I'm
2: I'm in the same place as you, Seth. I don't know how it's related exactly. So here we get this idea that in thinking something thinkable... We are receptive to the form of the object and so must be potentially the same as the object, although i not identical with it. This is the way in which he's saying if thinking is analogous to perceiving, then we're receptive to the form and potentially can become the same as the object, but not identical with it in the sense of just taking on the form. As the sensitive is to the sensible, so must mind be to the thinkable. And then he goes into this really interesting claim that the mind must be uncontaminated in order to know that it may be in control, that is, that it may know. For the intrusion of anything foreign hinders and obstructs it. Hence, the mind, too, can have no characteristic except its capacity to receive. That part of the soul, then, which we call mind, by mind I mean that part which the soul thinks and forms judgments, he's using a different word there, so I'm not sure if that's the opinion making faculty or not. But anyway, by the part which thinks and forms judgments has no actual Existence until it thinks pure potential. Yeah, this is a really incredible claim. <laughs> the Anaxagoras bit that
0: Anaxagoras was in the line of pre-Socratics, but hey, everything is water. No, everything is fire. Everything is uh, whatever the hell Heraclitus was saying. And Anaxagoras say, no, everything is mind. Everything is noose. In for Anaxagoras, mind is a cosmic principle. And so Aristotle is connecting a little bit of, you know, he's been talking all along about, of course, it's the mind of individual human beings or other kinds of creatures, but though human beings are the only ones that have noose. Then he wants to, you know, and this is again the place where the Christians just jumped on Aristotle, say that there's something universal about this. There's room to talk about the mind of God. There's room to talk about mind in general. You know, mind as a principle, as Anaxagoras says, in order that it may rule, that is, it in order that it may know.
2: Well, he has a, he has an argument for this in the next part of this, which is that unlike sensation, it's not that you have these extremes, you know, you would be damaged by thinking the extremes. So, for instance, he says, but when the mind mm-hmm. thinks the highly intelligible it is not less able to think of the slighter things, but even more able, as opposed to sensation, which if, you know, you're ex- subjected to an extreme stimulus, you're, you know say, blinded by light. And is that his only argument here for why the mind must be nothing until it thinks or pure potentiality.
1: No. He says that if thinking is like perception, then it would be affected by an object, a thought object. And this brings into play this whole notion of the acted upon, the acting, the potential versus the actual. In other words, because you can think about anything, then if you were something that could have potentiality and actuality in the same way that the sense organs do, you would have to potentially have everything in you because you could have any object that could conceivably impress upon it. And so it's not possible for whatever the intellect is to be something that has the potential to be So everything. you'd be
2: you'd be restricted in what you can think.
1: I didn't see it so much as him saying that we'd be restricted. I think he's saying the whole dynamic of potentiality and actuality makes sense when the organs are in accord with their objects, but when you're talking about mind you're not talking about an organ, and so the idea that there's that same structure of potential and actual in place doesn't make sense.
3: It's not that it doesn't make sense, is that it gets to its limit, right? It's exactly like we were talking about sounds and hearing, except in the case of thinking, it's all potential because all of the world, all of nature, is the other side of it. And so in order for it to be able to take in everything, it
2: has to be all possibility. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just wondering why we might not think that it can't take in everything.
3: He's saying that it can take in everything.
2: So he says, so it is unreasonable to suppose it is mixed with the body, for in that case it would become somehow qualitative, for example, hot or cold, or would have even have some organ, as the sensitive faculty has, but it in fact has none. There is no particular sensory organ for thought that, that's, I think, for him telling.
0: Which is why, to bring back this earlier point, the common sense, if there's a place that all the senses come together by which we coordinate them, that has to still all
2: be taking place within the realm of sense. Right. Yes. The so that's mind it, is not what does that, interestingly, for Aristotle.
0: Can we give the answer of what the noose is? It's the form of forms. That's 432a. We can explain what that means and how we get there. The way I, Gendlin at least, interpreted it was just like the hand is a tool of tools. This is what Aristotle says in that same section. The soul is as the hand is. For the hand is a tool of tools, and the noose is a form of forms. The hand is a tool of tools because it can hold any tool. Apparently, he elaborates this in some other text that's not the anima. That the hand is just as good as a spear because you can have a spear in your hand. And so, likewise, the noose does not itself become the form, it does not take on the forms of the things that it thinks about in the way that the eye somehow takes on the form of the things that it sees in the special sense, but it is a creator of forms somehow.
2: Hmm. That's not the way I read that.
0: This is at least the way Gendlin interpreted that. You know, the hand is what creates the tools, so the mind is what creates the forms— now, that, that does sound weird because it's not like the mind can just make up whatever forms it wants. It finds the forms in things. The forms are things in nature
2: objectively. So, in my translation, it's, it's not just form of forms, although it is kind of that in the Greek. It's the ados, adon. But it's the form which employs forms. We already know from the, his picture of the soul that the mind is a form. Mm-hmm. And then it, it's an interesting kind of form that is related to other forms out there in the world. So unlike the sensory organ, which is receptive to forms through this kind of, we can give this physiological account of it, the way in which it's affected and so on, with the mind, we're already dealing with something that's purely formal. So I I didn't see it as creating forms, though. I thought as receptive to them.
3: It's almost a grammatical distinction, right? Because when you say form of forms, it could mean what I think Mark was taking it to mean, which is it is the quintessential example of a form, or it could be something that is made by or contains forms. And that's the way I think you were taking it, Wes.
2: Well, in a way, you might think of it as an extractor of forms. So this is kind of what we get right after mind is a form which employs the forms of sensible objects. But since apparently nothing is a separate existence except sensible magnitudes, the objects of thought, both the so-called abstractions of mathematics and all states and affections of sensible things reside in the sensible forms. And for this reason, as no one could ever learn or understand anything without the exercise of perception, so even when we think speculatively, we must have some mental picture of which to think, for mental images are similar to objects perceived except they are without matter. There's this important sense in which when the mind grasps essences abstractly, we're piggybacking on our awareness of the forms in the sensible objects. So I think just very concretely, when we talk about the mind and what it's doing, we're talking about understanding the world. We're talking about saying what something is. We're talking about being a scientist and saying, what is this life form? And grasping the essence of some particular phenomenon or other in the natural world. And so we give an account of it, and that account is abstract in its own way, and we might think of it as this grasping of an essence, you know, as understanding. But of course, it relies on our perception and and the rest of it.
0: Let me just read a paragraph from the Gendlin here about interpreting that passage. So, Aristotle fashions the new concept, tool of tools, from the proposition, the understood forms are to noose, as the made tools are to the hand. Aha, we say, so we must guard against reading this as if noose were itself one more form or kind which noose makes the hand does not make itself the noose does not make itself aristotle thinks it comes into the soul from the outer cosmos this is from generation of animals another text just as the daylight comes from there a form of forms is not a universal rather it makes universals universals do not exist except as concepts in the soul of course you have a universal concept of hand but this does not make tools And noose is not even defined by a universal concept, because as he said earlier, the essence of noose is not the concept, but its activity of concept making. The activity of enacting universals is not a universal. So even calling it a form, I mean, we're committed from the very beginning of this treatise that the soul as a whole is a form, right, is the form of the human body. But there's something about noose at its highest level of abstraction that makes it so that he still is able to say that, no, 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 actually the soul doesn't need a human body. It could be eternal. It can contemplate eternal things. It can exist apart from a body because even though he wants to root it in a body by just like you were saying, Wes, that thinking has images, it abstracts from images. That's how we get forms is we abstract from real things that are perceived in the world. But yet the noose itself that is doing this is not itself a form you can't just say it's the thing the body does or something it is even higher than that it is not a
2: universal rather it makes universal it is pure activity one other way of thinking about this is going back to the this whole idea that mind is nothing unless it's thinking or I I forget how he puts it Mm -hmm. but it's almost as if the mind just is the objects of thought because it's nothing before that the mind can have no characteristic except its capacity to receive
1: Where, where are you
2: Just going back to 429A20... And has no actual existence until it thinks. The mind has no actual existence until it thinks. I mean, the way Mark and, and also, you know, the way you were talking about this reminded me of like a second order theory of consciousness, right? Where you get the functional activity of consciousness at one level and then this reflective. I, I don't think this is right, but then this second tier on top of that where consciousness comes about as the activity focused on the activity. That might not clarify things, but. <laughs>
0: Well, you're, you're pointing out uh, one of the things that we skipped a little earlier in here is earlier, Dylan was saying that he did, Aristotle didn't have a sense of consciousness. That's not one of the concepts that he deals with, but what he has instead is that all sensation involves sensing of itself, sensing that it senses, which if you listen to our first Sartre episode, that means non-positional consciousness (laughs) in Sartre's terms, but that will help no one except for me. Uh,
1: Remember when we used to have rules that we read before we started. <laughs> but he and he'll
2: also say that about thinking, though, right? That the thinking of the thought object is the mind thinking itself.
0: Right. So Gandolin described like, why would you think that about sight? Well, how can you tell if you can see or not? There's no like separate sense that you like check. You just see something, and you can't. Check whether you can see or not without actually seeing some particular thing. The ordinary operation of uh, perception being active. Is it the same thing with thinking? Then that
2: no, the thinking is different. Sorry, I was thinking is a whole different. Okay, it's even more extreme. But I mean, with the perception, it's just we are aware that we are aware. Yeah, our awareness that we are perceiving is part of perceiving.
1: So it's important in Aristotle's discussion. To be talking about the ways in which the intellect is similar to thinking is like perceiving and the ways in which it's different. So, when you start talking about perception of perception, you know, the second order in that sense, I think you start to stray a little bit from the spirit of the text, where thinking about it hierarchically may not be a terrible way to go, which I thought was where Wes was going a minute ago, but then it didn't quite come to fruition, right? So I want to read a section from my translation and you guys can feel free to read your versions of it. Although, uh, Dylan, I have to say, I thought yours would be, (laughs) after your description of it, I thought it would be clearer, but I found it a little more difficult. This is 429A going towards 429B, but not actually getting there. If then, thinking is like perceiving... It will either be some kind of affection by the thought object, in other words, it will be like a sense where it was it's a, some kind of potential thing that gets acted upon and then actualizes uh, through a form from an object, or some such thing. It must then be something unaffected, which yet receives its form and is potentially of the same kind as its object, but not the same particular, and the intellect must stand in that relation to objects of thought In which the perceptive faculty stands to those of perception. The part of the soul, then, that is called intellect is before it thinks, in actuality, none of the things that exist. This makes it unreasonable that it be mixed with the body because it would have a quality, blah, blah, blah.
2: This is the part that I was harping on before about the mind being nothing, as having no actual existence until it thinks and being nothing yes. but pure potentiality it's pure and, potential yeah. yeah yeah
1: consideration of the sense organs and of sensation makes it clear that the uneffectiveness of the perceptive and of the noetic faculties are not alike so this is where he's saying perception and thinking are not the same for a sense loses the power to perceive after the excessiveness you know after something excessively perceptible whereas the intellect has thought something extremely thinkable it thinks lesser objects not the less if the intellect is somehow built on the back of perception, we still don't understand what that means, that you've got these senses working individually and in conjunction to be able to take common objects, in other words, almost get into this ratio as things which can be affected by objects. And the intellect is somehow a second order or supervening thing on that, whether it's Self reflective in the way that you were talking about being aware of its own, you know, the being aware of your own awareness, or whether it's simply something that emerges or sits on top of it. The point is, is that the object, if you can talk about it in that way, of the intellect would be not an object that exists in the world in the way that it does for the senses individually and combined, but would be an object that somehow comes out of, or is somehow in, those senses already. And since the senses only take on a form of the objects, then if you want to talk about there being an object of thought, it is already going to be a form, because it's going to be made up of something out of these combined senses, which themselves are already only receiving forms. But because it crosses across all of those senses and all those second order objects, then its object would be a form or would be forms. But we can't think of a way in which the intellect, or at least the intellect, is not going to be structured in such a way that it's somehow the potential for all of these sensible forms.
2: I think it's good to be here to make a distinction between the sensible forms and the forms that are the objects of thought, which are essences. So those are different. So when we grasp the essence of... It's one thing to, to have the perceptible form of the tree, to have that affect us. It's another thing to know what a tree is and to be able to say what it is, to give an account of it, a scientific account. That's when we grab the essence, and that's what we do with thought. And it's relying on our perceptions, of course, but it's not simply us taking our perceptions and then making them the objects of a thought. There's uh, I, I guess we'd have to give a whole count of what it is to investigate things and to come to understand them. But I would say it's more complicated than right. Do you see what I'm saying? So I think you were taking my second order theory and kind of going with it. And then I'm, I'm saying it's not. <laughs> yeah.
1: No, so. I don't disagree with that. Wes. I think what I'm trying to say is if there's a second order relation here, it's more on the order of a hierarchy that's built out of object through sense, form goes from potentiality to actuality, like the form-matter distinction. And then you have a, a second level where you have all these forms that are being actualized in the sentence senses, which in turn become the objects of thought or the basis somehow of the objects of thought, versus the notion of sight knowing that it's seeing and hearing knowing that it's hearing, this self-reflective which I felt wasn't as prevalent in the text versus trying to build something hierarchically. That's what I was trying to get to.
0: Well, and the self-reflective thing brings up a problem, which is part of what that Gendlin quote that I read was trying to address, that he says, a sense can sense itself. You sense that sight is going on. But can you think...
2: A sense can't sense itself. It can. It does. The sense is aware that it is sense yeah but there's not sensing okay just because he has a whole section about how it can yep
0: no no that's you're right that's more precise you
2: can't
1: see yourself seeing but you can be aware that you're seeing
2: well the eye doesn't sense the
1: the eye and if it did we'd be in trouble
0: (laughs) so i was gonna i was gonna contrast that with the you know if the sense can sense itself in that the seeing contains the sensation that sight is going on in that sense, it is sensing itself. And contrast that with the fact that the organ of thought is not something that can become an object of thought.
2: No, it is,
0: though. Because we've already said the organ of thought. But the organ of thought is pure potential. It is nothing.
2: And then it is also, when it is acting, it is pure activity. Well, well, he has a whole section on this, though. 429B. Let's get into that. So our our second problem is whether the mind itself can be an object of thought. There you go. So he's worried here because for either mind will be present in all other objects, if that is mind is an object of thought in itself and not in virtue of something else, and what is thought is always identical in form, or else it will contain some common element which makes it an object of thought like other things. In the end, I think he's going to say mind can think itself. We have that reflective capacity. But if we do have the reflective capacity, then how do we explain that the mind also thinks objects of thought. Is it that they are, are also mind-like? Are they other minds that we're, you know, it's this type of worry, because he's thinking that there's going to be this sort of commonality between whatever it is that that mind is directing its attention to. Or there is the explanation which we have given before of the phrase being acted upon in virtue of some common element, that mind is potentially identical with the objects of thought, but is actually nothing until it thinks. What the mind thinks must be in it the same sense as letters are on a tablet which bears no actual writing. This is just what happens in the case of the mind. It is also itself thinkable, just like the other, other objects of thought. For in the case of things without matter, that which thinks and that which are thought is thought are the same. This is this really interesting assertion that when the mind thinks an, an, an object of thought, it is also thinking itself. That which thinks and that which are thought are the same. The mind is nothing. So this is where I was saying, you know, how the mind is nothing until it is actually thinking, and then the mind simply is the objects of thought. It's this really interesting idea.
0: Which it would have to be if the mind as pure potential is nothing. Right. Right? Then what is it? what else is it going to become? It's
1: nothing in actuality. Yeah.
2: Well, he says nothing until it thinks, and then it is the objects of thought. Right. Which... W- makes it interesting, though, like,
0: then, well, how do we distinguish between me thinking of the number two and you thinking of the number two? Well, you don't.
3: Not insofar as it's thinking.
2: So, insofar as it's thinking, it is the universal noose... It's not me and you. No, once you get to that point, there is no, he gets into that in chapter five, in the nous poeticon or whatever it's called. And there's a lot of literature on this, but it's what he calls the, the active mind, which they take to be God. Then you seem to get this very Berkeleyan account of the nobility of things being grounded in this universal active mind, which it's very cryptic. But yeah, I think to the extent that the mind engaged in an object of thought, there is no distinction between me thinking some object of thought and you thinking it. it. It just is the essence of the thing. And at the point, you understand that there isn't just Mark's particular take on the essence of some biological form and then Wes's take on it. Once we've grasped that, once we've understood that, it is just the thought object itself. That is the thinking. And it's not Mark or Wes that does the thinking. There is just is the thinking.
0: And I, I, I threw out the example of a number, which I, I think on second thought is not right because there are degrees of abstraction. So it comes down to what the difference between the thing and its thisness is, its essence. So we were talking about a dog, the individual thing, which even animals can perceive other dogs and dogness, the essence of dog. And those are distinct in the case of a perceptual object like that. As you go up the ladder of abstraction and are talking about the number two, even there's a difference between the number two is an individual and the concept of two and two-ness. That really the number two is something that we see in individual object. It's empirical. And moreover, it has, as I was saying earlier in giving what Aristotle's conception of matter is, it actually has matter to it that when you see number two, it's not just it presupposes its matter, which is the whole series of numbers, and it presupposes this empirical realm in which counting occurs. So you have to go even higher up the level of abstraction to talk about, I guess, metaphysical objects. I, I don't, you know, the the forms of logic. I, I'm not sure exactly what these things are, and in that case, the thing and its essence are one in the same, and also. The thing
2: and the thing thinking the thing are one and the same. (laughs) You're saying the particular and the essence are the same?
0: Yes. Hmm. (laughs) That seemed to me a a corollary of this thing that we were just saying is that the thought and the thinking of the thought are the same.
2: Well, look at what he says in following the passage I just read. In the things which have matter... Each of the objects of thought is only potentially present. He's trying to address this, this idea now. Well, does that mean the world is made of ideas or mind objects, right? If what I've just said is true, the mind can think itself and the mind thinks of objects of thought. Does that mean that everything in the world, that when we grasp the essence of something, we're grasping a mind entity? You know, he's asking the Berkeleyan question. And he says, well, no, the object of thought is only potentially present in the thing, Hence, while material objects will not have mind in them, for it is apart from their matter that mind is potentially identical with them, mind will still have the capacity of being thought. That's a little confusing. But material objects will not have mind in them. I don't know how to make sense of this idea that a particular object is its essence. Its essence makes it a particular. I agree with that. Well, I'm saying as you
0: go up the level of abstraction, so you're not talking about particulars anymore. Okay. Okay. I mean, which the number two is one that we normally think of as a case of, it is just a concept, but actually that's kind of an intermediate case for Aristotle.
3: But dogness wouldn't be, right?
0: No, that is very close to the level of a straight abstraction.
2: Yeah. I think, you know, when Aristotle is thinking about the essence of a dog, he's thinking about everything we can understand about it as scientists. So, and a a full account. So dogness, I'm not sure it does justice to it.
3: Maybe we just shouldn't use dogness then.
2: No, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not trying to correct us out of that. I'm just, yeah, just saying it sounds very platonic. And it, uh, yeah, and I may be wrong about this, but that's my impression of when Aristotle is talking about essence, is something more practical? But
3: the important thing here, just thinking about the way the distinction of thinking is another dog would perceive, the retriever would perceive the Labrador, right? But it would not be in Aristotle's understanding. It might even, or would also have an imagination about it. it, would have memory about that dog, stuff like that. But it would not be thinking about, thinking about dogs.
2: Yeah. It could never ask the question, what is a dog? And it could never begin to answer that question by yes. describing species or describing dog behavior or doing this or doing that. Yeah. So
3: that dog might, it might wonder where its friend was. It might come back to the backyard and be imagining that the dog was there in the yard and wondering where it is, stuff like
2: that. But it
0: would always be about a particular dog.
2: Yeah. It has the sensible form down, but, yes. but it can't do the thinking. Yeah,
0: Let's see. We're, we still haven't made the connection to, to 432 to get to the form of forms. Can we just try to work through those intervening? I see
2: 431. A, chapter seven. I don't know. Is there anything
0: in A that we want to read? I was
1: looking
2: at B, but
1: I'll back up. I gloss chapter
2: seven. So 4, 431a, knowledge when actively operative is identical with its object. And then the rest of it is just uh, baffling. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but potential knowledge is prior in time in the individual, but not prior even in time in general. For all things
2: that are come to be are derived from that which is so actually. Somebody have a better translation there? <laughs> what he's saying here is that Even though in time, you know, I may not know anything about dogs and then I learn about them. So the potential knowledge has priority in time in that sense. It's first I have the potential to know and then I know. Mm -hmm. But it's not prior in the sense he's going to say even in time because the thing already is what it is. And so the thing that we're going to think is an object of thought is prior. It makes the thing what it is and it before we ever come to it, before we ever come to understand it. So everything comes out of what actually is. So everything we under, know and understand is just based on those essences that are that are already there.
0: 431A4, it is clear that the object of perception makes that which can perceive actively so instead of potentially so, for it is not affected or altered. Hence, this is a different form from movement. For movement is an activity of the incomplete, while activity proper is different, the activity of the complete. He's trying to say the, the mind is something that is complete it is not
2: like the senses being altered. So he's famous for distinguishing two types of motion. One, kinesis is this motion that moves towards. So if you're building a house, you're not done with it until you've built the house. There are other types of activity which are complete in and of themselves. So there are activities in the truest sense. Energeia is in the truest sense. So thinking <laughs> is an example, but I, I was trying to... What's an, another example? <laughs> give you something more concrete yeah, well, so so for instance, you've learned something, you know it, and now you're exercising that knowledge. That activity, it's not like there's a beginning and middle and end to it. You don't have to have finished something in order. It's complete in every in every moment. It's not like one of these processes where the activity isn't done until you've completed the house until you've gotten to the end of it. So, the end is inherent in the activity and when we're trying to understand things, Our desire to understand that end, which is part of our nature, is satisfied in the activity of understanding. I find that difficult because it seems like
0: you have some knowledge. You know, I learn how to be a doctor and then I exert that knowledge. Well, presumably I'm doing something in particular and that action does have a beginning and an end and it has something that it can fail to do, just like building a house. It's not just I just, I'm emitting my doctor knowledge. It is, (laughs) it involves a concrete activity. I think
2: we're talking about contemplative knowledge here.
0: So that doesn't seem like the reason that you're having trouble coming up with another example of an activity that's complete in itself is because there are none. It's just, just, really?
2: (laughs) No, there are. I promise there are. I just don't remember. Thinking about thinking? From the secondary. Uh, This is explained very well in Christopher Shields' book, Aristotle. So go read it. (laughs) But anyway, I didn't want to have a slog through that because this is a really difficult section. Yeah, I didn't spend enough time with it to understand it.
0: Is there anything later in chapter 7 that we want to pull out? Those things which are spoken of as in abstraction, one thinks of just as if one thought actually of the snub, not qua snub, but separately qua hollow, one would think of it apart from the flesh in which the hollow exists. One thinks of mathematical entities which are not separate as separate when one thinks of them. This is a 431b12. That's very unhelpful in itself, but this is getting at that there are more and less abstract Things you could think about. So the snub is his example that he standardly gives of something that's tied. There's nothing that's snub except a nose. Noses are snub, and so when you say snub, you're not contemplating the snub in the abstract. You're you're thinking about noses that are snub. But then if you move to hollow, well, it's not just noses that are hollow. It's there are many things that are hollow, and so that's more abstract. And a and then a mathematical concept is even more abstract than than that because it applies to more things, and it's not necessary to think of the matter so much when you think of these more abstract things. And somehow, again, that's supposed to build toward the very next verse. In general, the intellect in activity is its objects. So this is why I'm equating this increasing level of abstraction with the equation of the thinking activity with the object of thought. Yeah,
3: in my translation it says, is the things it
0: thinks.
2: Yes, the Greek is pragmaton naon, which I know you hate that, Mark, but it's a very elegant way of, it's the things being known, being thought.
0: I found the the Greek stuff when I was going through the Gendlin, I think it was very helpful because, okay, this is in this section, whatever the term is for assertion and how he uses this over and over again and the different terms for knowledge, like that was useful, but just throwing them out in a way that people aren't going to remember them. I think in a podcast like this, you know, if we leave them knowing logos and noose, Probably that's about as far as we can successfully get, but I'm happy to hear more. (laughs) Chapter eight, I think is about the end of what we need to consider. Chapter nine gets a little more into the tie between knowledge and action, but chapter eight is summing up. Let us say again that the soul is in a way all existing things for existing things are either objects of perception or objects of thought and knowledge is in a way the objects of knowledge and perception, the objects of perception. How this is so, we must inquire. Knowledge and perception are divided to correspond to their objects the potential to the potential, the actual to the actual. In the soul, that which can perceive and that which can know are potentially these things the one, the object of knowledge, the other, the object of perception. This is not adding anything.
3: He's just sort of working through it. He's saying they must either be the things themselves or the forms. Surely they're not the things themselves. The stone is not in the soul, but rather the form. Sure. And then this is just where he gets to. Thus, the soul is just like the hand, for the hand is the tool of tools and the intellect is a form of
0: forms. There you go. All right. We finally come full circle back to this point, or gotten up to this point that I threw in prematurely earlier (laughs) to give us a sense of where we were going. Since there is no actual thing which has separate existence apart from, as it seems, magnitudes, which are objects of perception, the objects of thought are included among the forms, which are objects of perception, both those that are spoken of as in abstraction and those which are dispositions and affections of objects of perception. And for this reason, unless one perceive things, one would not learn or understand anything, and when one contemplates, one must simultaneously contemplate an image. For images are like sense perceptions, except they are without matter. But imagination is different from assertion and denial, for truth and falsity involve a combination of thoughts. But what distinguishes the first thoughts from the images? Surely neither these nor any other thoughts will be images, but they will not exist without images.
2: Yeah. So thinking is not perception or imagination, but it relies on them.
0: Yes. All right. In 9 and 10, we're getting more into bringing back this thing about motivation. So we had said that built right into perception is a notion of something's being pleasing or not, right? Does it have the right ratio And when you think about perception in animals and imagination in animals, and last time we talked about desire, these are all hooked together. So that, I don't want to say he's giving a pragmatic theory, but the way he outlines this in chapters 9 and 10 is it's that a perception really only sort of comes to fruition when it results in the animal reacting to the perception to go toward it or away from it. Perception is not just about seeing that something is there. It's about survival. And likewise, reason... So this gets us right into the ethics. Is really about contemplation of the good, that when you get a hold of something that is properly abstracted up the ladder from the perceptual objects, then, well, first he thinks it can't be wrong. Does anybody know why noose cannot be wrong?
2: Yeah, I mean, because wrongness involves predication, and the noose is more like perception in the sense that it's not predicative. So you're contemplating a concept. You're contemplating dogness, an essence, yeah. So it's a direct intuition. Let's put it, an intellectual intuition. It's not a judgment that you're making. It's not a predicative judgment where you say X is Y.
3: So it really is like a sense. It's our mind's sense.
2: Yeah, except it's kind of a universal, right? It's kind of like a form. Yeah, an essence.
3: Yeah, the material for it is not the kinds of things that are material for our senses. The material for it are forms.
0: And so one of the the forms it can, and this is not really spelled out in here, but just as the going toward or away from the object, the aesthetic reaction, the survival reaction is in a sense, the culmination of perception, at least when it comes to practical reason, then seeing the essence of the good and being able to, you know, overrule your gut instinct that is telling you to move forward or way that we add in what is of a benefit not just at the moment but over time and then we sort of get higher and higher to in different levels of abstraction and contemplate the form of the good and that ultimately tells us
2: where where are you reading or oh here okay so four thirty three B I think. The former is the practical good. Huh.
0: I don't know that the term form of the good shows up in here anywhere, but this is how I was reading it. Obviously if the noose gets at forms and adding reason is what enables us to resist temptation and pursue the good, then we're kind of playing the form of the good,
2: right? I think he thinks that desire is something that sort of crosses across all the faculties. Yep. And so I think we can just have a basic desire for the good. Sure. But I'm speaking speculatively here because...
0: Well, no, and this is this is in reaction to Plato. Remember back in the Republic that we've got the three parts of the soul are the intellect and the spirit and the desire. And he wants to say no, 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 no. In fact, he's got a whole thing in here that says intellect by itself would not motivate you to do anything. There has to be some desire. And so like you just said, Wes, the, you know, that there are desires at all three of these levels. And the desire that is motivated by intellect is going to be necessarily
2: correct in a way that ones motivated just by perception and imagination are not going to be. So for instance, he says things like, for the object of appetite, the object of desire produces movement, and therefore thought produces movement, because the object of desire is its beginning. So there's some sense in which thought inherits desire It seems like he's saying we can be motivated by thoughts because desire is inherently implicated in thinking. In the same way that it piggybacks on perception, Mm -hmm. for thought to work, it has to piggyback on perceptions. Thought inherits desire as well from perception.
3: That's the only way thought moves us. Right, right. Is by desire, unlike other things. So in some ways, it most manifests itself that way.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, and can we connect this back to teleology and call it a day? <laughs> that somehow we've seen, he goes back in chapter 12 and starts summing up, oh yeah, yeah, everything that lives and has a soul must have the nutritive soul from birth to death. And then, well, sense perceptions, not necessary in all living things, but and it starts just really going through the types of animals again and, and who has what kind of soul. So each of these is driven by a final cause, and it's only at the point of contemplation where we can actually make the final cause into one that we are consciously holding in mind and aiming at, as opposed to something that merely drives the whole thing just by the nature of the form. Anyway, that's how I saw this as ending with a nice bow on it, that this is a (laughs) reminding us, this is a theory of why animals do the stuff they do, because of their growing, thriving, thinking soul. And thinking is not like Nietzsche might think that Oh, an excess of thinking just detaches us from our animal instincts. It's the culmination of the teleology that was going on at all these levels. And it just allows us to see more clearly the true shape of the world and react to it appropriately and live on after death.
3: Well, maybe and that bow that you're thinking of, isn't it just at the end of 13 where he says that Read well, it. It says the animal has the other senses, as we said, not for the sake of being, but for the sake of well-being. It has vision, for example, so that it can see since it lives in air or water or generally in the transparent. It has taste on account of the pleasant and painful so that it may perceive this in its nutriment and desire it and move itself while it has hearing so that something may be signified to it and tongue so that it may signify something to another interesting that the tongue here is not about taste but about speech
0: it seemed like a big letdown after all these very dense sections in chapters 12 and 13 that he's just going back and talking more about sea sponges and stuff I... <laughs> it didn't kind of trail off
3: at the end i'd forgotten how hard a book that book is yeah it's a really hard book but to me It's a hard book in a way that makes me want to keep reading it. There are books that I've read and books that we've read here that I'm like, I just don't even want to keep reading that book. (laughs) Like Lacan is that way. You know, okay, whatever. It's not hard in an interesting way. Reading this again, I can imagine I want to actually read it again later. I can understand why not just Thomas Aquinas, but somebody would sit and write a line by line commentary about it because they wanted to understand the book better. I totally get
2: it. Yeah. This is not going to sound very profound, but it's profound. (laughs) It's so dense and it can be caricatured as something as categorizing and, you know, and all the other, you know, ways that you might caricature Aristotle as dry and, you know, yeah, you could take any sentence, any paragraph and really do a lot of thinking about it. Now, that said, in my laziness, I have to admit I enjoy reading about Aristotle more than I enjoy (laughs) Reading Aristotle, just, you know, if I were in the mode of sitting down and taking a paragraph and thinking about it, it'd be another thing. But so, yeah, I went on a tear just, you know, reading so many different.
0: Did you read all the essays in the Nussbaum? I did. Compendium? Wow. <laughs> Franz Brentano.
2: I read the entire 400 page book and I read some of these other books. But of course, it's not careful enough to give me anything but this kind of general feel, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> I haven't gone through and like systematically thought about or summarized as I like to do or any of that stuff. But
0: No, it's hard to regurgitate these things. The Gendlin moves so slowly just because it's really hashing through each line and is so then repetitious in that a lot of it does stick, but I couldn't reproduce
2: large portions of it here. The Gendlin, unfortunately, I didn't get all the way through because I was so into the other stuff. But I forgot how useful he is, you know? So anyway, so I regretted not being able to get through all of them. But yeah, really difficult book. and, And I think it's nice to look at some of the secondary literature just to, if you're skeptical about how much there is, you will quickly be disabused of that by just looking at any commentary, any of the secondary literature on it.
0: Well, I do think that this second half
2: though was much more hopping than the first half.
0: It was far more interesting, more cool stuff brought up. Even just slogging through all those chapters on perception in the first place, which we summed up here in the first like two minutes of our discussion. Yes, there's a little more in them, <laughs> but not enough <laughs> to make it worth <laughs> getting through it. Whereas all, I think, you know, these first bunch of chapters on the mind are just, there's so many different cool things that are brought up. It seems more worth it, but that could just be a, the different way I prepared this time than last time. So I don't know. Other thoughts? Seth, you still with yeah. us? Put a bow on <laughs> Put it.
1: Put a bow on it. If. This was the book that was a topic for a seminar that I was taking. I probably would be much more into it than I was. I get frustrated sometimes when we read the hard Greek guys in translation because then you're making a call on who you're reading and then you got to go to the secondary literature and you're trying to dive back in without actually understanding. And I can sense the feeling that Dylan expressed, but I don't share it. I would not go and intentionally spend hours of my time going back through this But I would happily, if I was in a position to take a class with some people and somebody who could walk me through it and we would kind of dig into it a little bit. So when we launch another Aristotle-only podcast, which will focus on the metaphysics for the first six years of its existence, then I'll get back on it.
0: I think this was a good way of sliding into the metaphysics, that it left me wanting to know more about substance and other stuff like that.
1: Hey fans, if you made it this far, how about somebody... (laughs) is sharing some resources on a really, really good and clear explanation of the potential actual thing and how it functions in sensation. I think that would be a really foundational thing that would be helpful.
0: It's just that your eye turns red when you see something red. What is there else to understand?
1: Of course. Is that it? Yeah, no, it's obvious. <laughs> yes. It
0: it becomes shaped like a dog. <laughs> your eye is shaped like a dog. <laughs> Well, thanks, everybody. We're going to do something a little easier next time. We're going to have Massimo Piliucci, until recently from the Rational Speaking podcast, joining us to read several letters about stoic virtue from Seneca from the first century AD, specifically on the terrors of death, on old age, on the shortness of life, on pleasure and joy, on good company, on the happy life, on facing hardship, and on self-control. So that's going to be a party. I can't control myself. We should just take out all the ones that sound happy. <laughs> We're just going to read old age, death, <laughs> the shortness of life, hardship, the end. I'm terror. We're supported by your donations. Please go to com to make a contribution. Big donors since last time have included John Halloran, Paulo Goulard, Richard Haynes, George Paulos, Michael Clark, Bill Cromarty, Brock Nadeau, Barry Thornhill, Robert Ralston, Stephen Williams, Andrew Rogers, John Tyndall, Laura Lochner, James Kane, Ted Hodgson, Jesse Rodriguez, Imad Zahir, Per Samuelson, Eric Parkinson, Kevin Rogers, Jacob Lundgard, Steidl Berkland, Jesse Martinez, Leonard Wedgmark, Bruce Lochner, Tim Coromel, David Stanton, Denise McAllister, Chris Jarzembeck, Christine Urquhart, Russ Baker, Alexander Conrad, Richard Ostrom III. Trixie Rawlinson, Renee Snow, Darren Siphon, Brian Woodring, and Richard Moore II.
1: Wow. Thanks, all those folks.
0: Gosh. Yes. And to those people who bought our 2016 calendar, there's still some left. Come on, get them and, uh, follow us on Twitter and Facebook and stuff like that. Any other, any specific call to action?
1: We need more Twitter followers. Go follow us on Twitter.
0: Those yours from last time. Huh? Was it? <laughs> yes. Follow Ask Chicky on uh, Instagram. That's the call to action.
3: All right. You started Ask Chicky finally.
0: Just on Instagram.
3: <laughs> Good night. Good night. Good night, everybody.
0: Good night.
4: The thing that I love says it's planning to stay with me Except you Everything will stay Except you
0: Wonderful you Wonderful you Wonderful you
4: And I'm convinced that the worst part is done
0: I believe that the world is swelling and there's good in everyone And I know that it's one of those times when I have to step back and stop consciousness here Cause I just can't believe you won't stay you, everything's okay, except you,
5: wonderful you, wonderful you, wonderful you. you.
6: and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Partially Examined Life's after show broadcast. It's an exciting one and there's a lot to talk about and there are a lot of people here already who I want to introduce. We have a very special guest, Rebecca is joining us. I just got a little bit of a background on Rebecca but I think it wouldn't do me justice to repeat it. It would be better to hear it from you yourself. Tell us a little bit about you.
5: Sure. So I am a tutor at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. I wrote a dissertation on Aristotle's De Anima, and I have some published and forthcoming publications on it. Can it's you not... Is an
6: expert? An expert, I think we could no. say.
5: no, no, no. no. <laughs> I reject that word fully. I reject it as part of who I am and part of where I teach and where we read these books, and nobody's an expert. I just have read this book a lot.
6: I'll tell you the truth. I the last part of what you said, nobody's really an expert. And I've been saying this for a long time. I don't think anybody's an expert on anything. And the older I get, the more I believe that.
5: I think I'm inclined to mistrust anybody who says they're an expert on something.
6: That's right. I'm an expert on experts. <laughs> there are none. Let's get this party started. We're talking about Aristotle's The Anima, correct? The Anima. Oh, are we all on board here? Yes. A fascinating show. And uh show that I found a little bit hard to wrap my my mind around, talking about uh, I think listening to Aristotle uh talk about the news for a long time made me almost want to use one less. I uh I had a hard time understanding it. But let's uh let's start with a few things.
2: We we may not have done the best job on this one explaining <laughs> so, well, it's we have a quote unquote non extra.
6: I'm not gonna blame you guys, but uh Uh, Let's start with, I I took some notes uh, just to get this conversation started. Imagination cannot be opinion and sensation. That's the first thing I wanted to discuss. Imagination cannot be opinion and sensation. And what is he saying exactly that it is? And Rebecca, this question is to you as well. Um,
5: It's to me as well as as other people, or it's to me as well as other questions will be?
6: Well. Every question is to you. Oh, okay. to you. Every question is to everyone. You can kind of clarify this for me, and then people can jump in from there. Okay.
5: Well, I guess, I mean, I would start by saying that for Aristotle, maybe one of the clearer things he says about imagination is that it's a motion that follow a motion, that follows from sense perception, but that you can have sense perception and not yet have imagination.
6: I can't say that I'm less lost. <laughs>
5: So, you have dogs. Yes. I've heard you talk about your dogs. So, I mean, maybe dogs fall into a middle category. We're we're not sure. But, for example, Aristotle thinks that some animals have sense perception, but that they don't go further and imagine things. So that they might be able to, say, sense the thing, um, let's say, just by touch. Right? They can feel that there's something cold or warm in front of them. But short of that thing being directly in front of them, they couldn't, say, imagine the warm thing that was once there or that was just there. And that sounds a bit like memory, and, of course, it's connected to that. But they also couldn't call to mind suddenly, you know, oh, somebody mentioned on the show uh, when your dog might imagine the other dog that was once in the yard. There are some animals that can't do that. They can only sense directly what's right in front of them.
6: Okay. Okay.
7: Does, I have a question concerning that. So does Aristotle then have anything to say about... I mean, he seems pretty, for his time, progressive about the fact that, like, his souls might not just be a concept uh, relegated to people. Like, you know, animals have souls. But he also says some animals just can only have an animal consciousness, that they only touch things to perceive them. Like, does he get into... I mean, I skimmed I skimmed my copy of the book after reading the podcast, so I'm not sure, like, does he... Make any distinction or try to schematize that? Like, oh, maybe there are animal, like lower souls.
5: Is this for me as well? (laughs) I I mean I think (laughs) I I I actually think that's the best way to approach this text is by sort of asking yourself, okay, where are we and what kind of soul does the being he's talking about right now have? So certainly animals have souls. They have souls capable of sensation. And that means that they already also have nutritive souls. So Aristotle thinks, right, there are perhaps three basic kinds of soul, nutritive, sensitive, and intellectual souls. To be alive means to have a nutritive soul. You can also then add to that a sensitive soul. And then you could add to that an intellectual soul. So the things that have intellectual souls are probably limited to human beings. But then there's the broadest, I mean, there's certainly more in the other two categories. All plants, all animals have souls. The world is animate for Aristotle. It's filled with animate beings.
6: It's interesting how he categorizes these souls and breaks down these souls. And not that it's one kind of soul that's deficient in this or that. It's that there are separate souls. And Wes, would you like to chime in on the question of different souls if Aristotle is specifically saying there are different categories of soul and some have multiple soul or is he saying there's one kind of soul but it can be deficient in this or that well I think
2: Rebecca explained it very well I, I I'm not sure you would talk about deficiencies but I I think um you know as Rebecca was explaining there's you could think of these as functions or powers or potentialities that souls have or don't have so so an animal soul will have the nutritive power and the sensitive powers, but it won't have the intellectual powers. So, uh, I don't know if we want to call it, say, deficiencies in the sense it's lacking a, right. a plant soul will be lacking in the sensitive and intellectual powers, you know, if
6: you want to call that a According different. to Aristotle, can a creature have more than one soul or being? No. More no, like one soul. Ways. It's one soul.
5: One soul. So, he actually likens it, right, at one point to the way that the souls, I think of them as nested, one in the other his analogy is to geometric figures so that in any in the quadrilateral we can divide it up and we see that there are triangles there so and then as you grow your figure you might also see a square within a larger sided figure but you'd have to break it up to see that in some ways the question of soul is what kind of being is this right if it's a plant one of the ways we know that it's a plant is by saying, well, it does these things and it engages in these activities. And the reason why it does that is because it has this kind of soul. So what kinds of beings do we see in the world? We see plants, we see animals, we see human beings, and we see a variety among those. We see different kinds of plants, we see different kinds of animals.
6: He also talks about the soul being eternal, right? First, there's a discussion about the soul as a whole is a form. And it seemed like there was a rejection of that idea because it didn't need to take a form itself. Am I correct in in how I understood that? Because I think Aristotle was saying the soul is an eternal thing, right?
2: Yeah, I don't think it's going to turn out to be eternal, although he will think of noose or intellect as something that perhaps can survive the destruction of the body. But in general, the soul is not something that's going to survive the destruction of the body because it's closely tied to the body. It is, the, it is actually the form. An organized body is the matter in this sense. Right. So there's a close connection, which scholars sometimes call hylomorphism, where the soul and the body are inseparable, and the soul is the form of the body.
6: This is hilomorphism, is the word for
2: that? Yeah, it just means matter and form. Hilo, matter and...
7: Like, for me, that's what I'm more familiar with than yeah. Aristotle... And it's like it seems like this book is kind of his applying that. Like he's already formalized that's his theory to attack things with. It seems like then he just attacks, like, animation of things with that same. His earlier he's talking about what is the thisness of something, and then he's like, well, okay, what about mind? So it just kind of struck me today that maybe it's kind of like this is his scientific approach, mm-hmm. right? And it. It's not necessarily particular to trying to figure out how a mind works, but it, this is how he's been trying to figure out how like yeah. most physical things function.
4: In De Anima, I couldn't find any point where he talks about the connection of nous or mind to the psyche or or soul that is particular to the the human being. Like he talks about um, some of the higher faculties, like uh, foresight, that you know mark out us, I guess. And that things like plants or dogs don't have, and you know we all have souls all the way through. But how noose, how mind, you know, the creative mind that allows you to make things or you know design a boat, he doesn't seem to talk about that there. I just wonder if anyone knows.
7: In any other text, does he
5: approach that?
7: Like a creative aspect is what you're is what you're asking.
5: Yeah. He talks about the, I think it's called nus Poieticos, right, in 3.5. And I'm wondering if that's where you're getting this notion of making, that if the soul makes things, that, uh, which I, I don't think that's entirely what he means there, or maybe I just...
4: Yeah, no, it's just, I, I, the I just... I just do De Anima is just fascinating for its discussion of what a soul is. I'm just trying to think out in somewhere in the Aristotle corpus where he talks about how humans specifically have this ability to think to access the Logos or whatever. But you're right, it is pointing way outside the text that's in front of us.
5: Also, one thing, I mean, I think Nick made this point earlier, in some ways this is not a treatise on human beings. It's Correct. just not. It's a treatise on living things. And what is the difference between living things and non-living things and among living things? What are the different varieties of living things? and You know, as I was saying before, there's a whole variety of plants, there's a whole variety of animals. It looks like maybe there's only one kind of living thing that has noose. And he doesn't spend an enormous amount of time in this treatise on it, even though that's where so much of the attention, I think, perhaps wrongly has has been given when we read this text.
8: Hmm. I'm curious about my understanding of this. So what I've tried to map it onto is, I think this is a recurring issue that sort of recurs through metaphysics, and that sort of relationship between the particulars and the forms or the properties that emerge out of the interaction between particulars, or between mat- you know, the matter arising out of matter, if you like. So the way I'm thinking about it is this, that a form is something like how he is trying to capture the fact that individual things combined together to produce wholes that have different properties than their individual parts. So he's saying, so he's trying to attach those kind of emergent properties to a form and then so that gives us the soul, the soul is like then all that living thing that happens in virtue of the fact that we're composed of organs that when they're joined together do something. What do they do? They do the soul and then if you think of the mind or the, this intellectual part of the mind which he, which he seems, seems to call the form of forms, now I was thinking about that, I thought well if I were thinking about thoughts, well, what would I? How would I attach thoughts to the body? Well, they're not a chemical process or a biochemical process in the way that the soul is. If I'm taking this modern view of it, in the sense that if light reacts with my nervous system, that's a biochemical reaction, and that's a kind of activity of the body. In the way that he talks about sound, I thought there was quite a modern definition of sound, where there's like this something reacting with the body, and the sound is a product of that reaction. So I'm thinking perhaps this. Soul is this first order level of emergence that describes the interaction of the parts of the body. And then the thoughts are obviously not a chemical process or a biological process in that sense, but somehow must be a process that is parasitic on that biological process, or in other words, a form of a form. In fact, if my understanding of form is, is appropriate there, I don't know if it is.
2: I think thinking of the soul as something that's emergent is going to be a problem <laughs> just because the soul is meant to have this causal role, and emergent properties, I think, are generally non, non-causal. non
8: uh, uh, well, I don't mean um, epiphenomenal properties. I mean, like, wetness of water can cause a tissue to be wet. You know? I, right. I don't okay. mind speaking yeah. in terms of... Uh, what I mean is that, like, for example, he thinks that matter as a constituent part of something, right? Rather than physical stuff, he means the parts of it. Is that That's my understanding like the brick of a house is its bricks but then the br- the house has a form in virtue of not being merely an assemblage of bricks but in a, being a particular assemblage of bricks in a particular right. way and that <laughs> what i think that he means by form there in, to my modern mind is the property something has in virtue of being the particular assemblage of matter that it that it has i so think this
7: is to do with essences as well like th- is this what he would describe as an essence like the I had a note on this of like he thinks of an essence as something that if that thing loses that it loses its identity like as a house, so it's like the basic fundamental thisness of the thing, so does he think of the soul as the like thisness of humans or of animated things I guess is that what you're getting at
6: would a good ad for herbal essence is shampoo. <laughs> <laughs> Your hair is gonna lose its form without its this particular structure that is your hair the way you like form. Your hair is gonna lose what it what
0: makes it <laughs> hair. Thanks for listening to this after show preview. The full discussion is an hour and a half long, and as you can see, even though we covered Da Anima extensively on the podcast already. This is kind of a different approach in that we brought on a scholar, maybe not an expert, but a scholar in this area, Rebecca Goldner. Thanks so much to her for doing this. But we also have our host, Danny Lobel, and several other Partially Examined listeners with various levels of knowledge about the topic. The idea being that if some of the discussion was over your head as we were having it, maybe this kind of forum can serve to clear up some of the confusing details. To hear the whole discussion, you have to become a Partially Examined Life citizen at PartiallyExaminedLife.com. You can get it from the free stuff for citizens tab under members or better yet, you can quickly configure the citizens feed, which will beam the full discussion and many others like it straight to your mobile device. Our next planned after show will be on Hegel's logic. It'll happen sometime in March. Keep an eye out, keep an ear out for when it's happening. You can appear on it. If you become a partially examined life citizen, and even if you don't, you can watch it happen live over YouTube. Thanks.